This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. The war in Ukraine has added new urgency to efforts to transition away from fossil fuels. It's important for fighting climate change, but it's also important for geopolitical reasons. The global reliance on oil and natural gas produced in autocratic countries is a source of their political power. Western Europe's reliance on natural gas from Russia in particular has limited the effectiveness of our financial sanctions. Russia takes in about a billion dollars in hard currency a day from hydrocarbon sales. So what can we do to make that shift faster so Europe isn't so reliant on Russian gas, so the U.S. economy is not so vulnerable to shifts in global oil prices, and so American lifestyles don't produce so many carbon emissions? What investments do we need to make? How quickly can we make them? And what will the cost be? To talk about that, Joshua D. Rhodes is my guest this week. Joshua is a research associate at the Weber Energy Group at the University of Texas at Austin and a non-resident fellow at Columbia University. He's a founding partner of an energy consulting firm called Ideasmiths. Hi, Joshua. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So politicians like to talk about energy independence. Is, is that a meaningful term? Well, not really. Energy independence is kind of a nebulous idea in terms of in general, being able to source all of the energy that you consume, kind of locally produce it, process it, and you know be able to use it. But we live in a global market for fuels, for energy, uh, particularly like oil, which is a vastly global market, and natural gas, which is becoming more of a global market as countries transition away from things like burning coal to make electricity, et cetera. The U.S. is blessed with a lot of domestic energy resources, but we're not always blessed with the lowest cost energy resources. And that's why sometimes we import, you know, this this energy from other other places. So while it you know, could be possible, it would probably be more expensive. Otherwise, we would have already done that, you know, to be completely, you know, energy independent ourselves. But so when you when you talk about the global nature of the, the market, the, the other thing there is that, you know, even if a country produces precisely the same amount of oil that it consumes, the price of it is still affected by price changes elsewhere. And in part, that's because if oil is in short supply elsewhere around the world, then you get market pressure to export it to those places. And the, the, the price almost inevitably has to move somewhat in, in line around around the world. So then what does it look like, you know, if, if, if it's just, you know, domestic production isn't the thing that, that makes sense? us, you know, unconcerned about how the price of oil moves or unconcerned about what's happening in Saudi Arabia or Russia. What does it look like then to have an energy policy that aims toward those twin goals, which is to say, uh, I want fewer carbon emissions, I want to fight climate change, and I, I don't want to be at the mercy of Saudi Arabia. I don't want to, you know, to have these other countries having power over us because of the way they can influence these markets. I mean, really, I think when it comes to really achieving that type of goal. I mean, I, I really think that's really pointed toward things like electrification because the electricity sector is already 100% domestically produced. Like all the electricity that we generate and consume in this country comes from fuels sourced in this country. And that electricity generally, you know, it, we, have, we have some trade with Canada and Mexico, but we're more friendly with them than we are in some other, some other <laughs> countries around the world. And so moving a lot of the things that we you know, a lot of the energy services that we consume away from consuming petroleum products and oil and moving them to things like electricity, like electric vehicles or heat pumps or things like that um, to heat and cool one's home, that inherently moves us more towards a domestic source of energy that we're already really good at, you know, producing and consuming. 
I want to actually start in Europe because I think that's where a lot of the, the geopolitical issues that we're concerned about right now start. Europe gets nearly a third of the natural gas that it consumes from Russia. Suppose the Europeans want to break that relationship. And, I, and at some abstract level, they absolutely do want to break that relationship. Mm -hmm. They don't like this position any more than we do where they're at the, the mercy of Russia for, for natural gas supplies. So what, what does a policy look like for Europe, which doesn't have the same natural resource blessing that we do in this regard? What does it look like if you're Europe and you're trying to figure out how do I not need so many gas imports from Russia. Yeah. I mean, entire economies like that don't change on a dime. And so probably there's going to have to be in the short term some substitution. Now, whether that's from... And Europe does have some fossil fuel resources. They've just chosen not to really extract them. They can get more of their local fuels, but they've, you know, those populists have decided that they don't necessarily want to do that. And so they've been importing it from other countries such like Russia and, and the U.S., you know, the U.S. has to send it over by liquefied natural gas via big ships. And so there's only so much, so many ships we have that can, you know, that can dock and unload uh, that uh, liquefied natural gas to the European continent. There are plans, it looks like, to increase those terminals so that the U.S. could send more of our natural gas because we have an abundance here on this continent. We just, you know, can't really move it around very well. And then, you know, also just getting off of, of gas in particular. I think countries like the U.K., you know, are looking to you know, deploy more nuclear reactors and electrify things as fast as they can. Other countries are looking to deploy more renewables and, you know, energy efficiency. And some of the same things we talked about energy independence for the U.S., I mean, can happen with Europe. Europe has a, you know, has an electricity grid that it could electrify a lot of end use sources like electrified heating and things like that, that they could get that electricity from, you know, other fuels besides Russian gas. So, so let's talk about some of those components because, you know, all of those have certain costs and, and also certain timescales associated with them. You describe, you know, we, we don't have, we only have so many ships, so many terminals, that sort of thing. What's the timescale for stepping up that liquefied natural gas export to Europe? Is that something where, you know, within six months, there could be a great deal more of that? Is that something that we're talking about a matter of years? What does that investment look like? I mean, I think there's some marginal gas that could come on soon with the equipment that we you know, currently have. We can have better logistics, better operations of moving ships in and out of those ports, getting them unloaded uh, more quickly. But there's going to have to be some infrastructure built if we want to meaningfully increase that amount. So either more export terminals in the U.S., which we're building pretty quickly on the Gulf Coast and other areas, and then more import terminals in Europe. And then within Europe, actually better connecting their regions. And so just because you can get gas to a European country doesn't mean that they can actually get it to their neighbors. So if you get it to Spain, doesn't mean necessarily that gas can reach all the way to, to Germany if the pipeline infrastructure doesn't exist. And big infrastructure projects typically take, you know, or orders of years and decades to get done. However, there are instances when, you know, countries being in a wartime footing have built things extremely quickly. The U.S. actually built, we call a pipeline from the Texas Gulf Coast to New England in about a year. They call it the Big Inch. It was one of the biggest pipeline developments that we ever built. And we built it quickly. I'm sorry, when was this? What, what year are we talking about? So that about? was in World War II. So we were worried about our supply ships getting sunk by German U-boats. And so we decided to move the gasoline jet fuel from Texas to uh, New Jersey via pipeline. And we did that in a year. So it can happen. You just have to have the political will to, to make it so. And then what, is, what does that mean for our domestic market? You say here that you know, we have an abundance of natural gas. If we start, if we really step up our natural gas exports to Europe, is that going to increase the price of natural gas in the United States? 
because basically some of what would have been domestic supply gets diverted? Yeah. So the so while the U.S. and the world are you know completely coupled in a in a global oil market, we are slightly discoupled from the natural gas market. Meaning our prices are lower because we can't export. You know we have a bottleneck of exports. So yeah, if we do export more, if we are able to more fluidly move that gas to global markets, then we'll get closer to the global price. Now, we'll, we'll serve to bring the global price down a little bit, but that could increase the price domestically, yes. And then you mentioned shifts away from natural gas. You're, you mentioned you know a shift toward nuclear in, in Britain and that, and that sort of thing. Can you talk a little bit about the way that fuels are and are not substitutable for each other on the electric grid. My understanding is that you have you have certain things like coal and nuclear that have to be based power generation, where basically you can't quickly turn the plants on and off. And then one of the big advantages of natural gas is that it's very fast to turn the plant on and off. And so it's it's useful, for example, to, to balance out wind power. You have wind power and sometimes it's windy and sometimes it's not. When the wind dies down, you can turn on the natural gas plant and you know and, and you have quick replacement power for the lost wind power. So does that does that mean that the natural gas is in this very important part in the power grid that makes it hard to replace? Can you really just replace it with with nuclear? Or what is what does a strategy look like where you need not just something else you can make electricity with, but something else you can make electricity with in the specific situation where you're relying on the natural gas? Yeah, you bring up a good point in terms of flexibility on the system. So power plants that are able to be flexible, increase or decrease their output quickly, are useful if demand is also fluctuating. Now, that has historically been the case that we've had nuclear was uh, baseload, coal was baseload. It just kind of put out a steady output. And then other sources like natural gas kind of fluctuated and, and matched supply and demand. Newer technologies, though, in those traditionally baseload categories are able to be more flexible. France does ramp their nuclear plants up and down. France is about 70% nuclear. And so they, they have the ability to do that. The U.S. Navy has been ramping nukes up and down on aircraft carriers and things for for decades now. So, I mean, we do know how to do it. And we have other technologies that are also, you know, becoming, you know, a few years ago, I would have said on the horizon, but now are being deployed pretty widely. Things like energy storage, you know, batteries that can that can ramp even faster than things like natural gas. And then there's also the demand side. So supply and demand electricity have to be matched in real time. But decreasing demand is roughly equivalent to increasing supply. So as we move towards more things like renewables that we're not able to control, if we're able to control load better, you know, pay people to stop using electricity during a certain time, we can also match supply and demand that away. There's been a whole evolution of these technologies that have allowed us to have more control over different parts. It's more complex, but it seems to be working pretty well. And does that, does that affect cost too? I mean, I, I assume if you have to have some big battery array associated with your, your wind or solar generation, that must increase the, the cost of it, right? Is that is that a large increase in cost? How, how does that affect the calculation about, you know, whether these are these are cost effective things that you can ask consumers to pay for and they won't object too much? Yeah, no, I mean, energy storage technologies do cost, batteries cost, you know, cost money, they they can add cost to the system. But generally, you're pairing that with a very low cost generation that doesn't have to buy fuel, like the sunlight's free, the wind is free. And so you're moving from a more a heavier marginal cost system, meaning a, a system that pays for every megawatt hour or kilowatt hour of electricity it produces via buying and burning fuel to one that just pays for capital, pays for building things like the wind farms and the solar farms and the batteries. And then generally the operation of those is pretty low cost. And so it's just a, gen, it's a different paradigm in how the, we run the electricity sector. Those costs are coming down 
very, very fast. I mean, the the de- price declines and things like wind and solar have, um, you know, the past few you know decades have come down, you know, ninety some odd percent from where they were. And we expect you know batteries also to to come down. And it just seems like every other day there's another there's another announcement of someone reaching a new milestone. And then you mentioned that we can electrify things that currently aren't. So, I mean, obviously you, you can use natural gas to run power plants, but you also use natural gas directly for home heating. Right. Um, and so what does it look like if we try to install these electric heat pumps in a lot of homes in, in Europe or in the United States? Is that can we get a lot of, of reduction in reliance on, on gas out of that? What does that look like for for cost for homeowners who are thinking about doing that? Yeah, no, I mean, electrifying heat is one, it's going to really depend on where you are and kind of how cold it gets because heat pumps, um, there's some older technologies don't work well in terms of when the when the outdoor temperature gets very low. It's basically an air conditioner that runs in reverse, right? That instead right. of importing cool air into the home, it, it uses the same sort of heat exchanger running in the opposite direction to import hot air into the home. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you ever go outside your air conditioner and hold your hand over the fan, it's going to be hot air coming out and that's moving heat mm-hmm. from the inside to the outside. And this is just a reverse of that. It's moving it's moving heat from what feels like a cold out, outside, but there still is heat in that air and it's moving it inside to your home. And that takes electricity. And so upgrading homes that haven't been run, that have been running on either fuel oil or natural gas for their heating, there could be costs with that, specifically if they don't have, you know, the right size electric hookups. If you need to upgrade the panel size as well, like how much energy can actually flow into a home can be bottlenecked by, you know, the legacy uh, infrastructure that's on the side of the building. And so there will be costs associated with that. But generally, overall, a lot of analysis that has been done by a lot of researchers has has shown that over the lifetime of the system, it can be lower cost. And electricity generally doesn't fluctuate in cost as much as things like natural gas or fuel oil. Um, because multiple different fuels can give us electricity, there could be some substitution there. So we can switch from gas to wind to coal to all of, you know, whatever is cheaper kind of at that time. Whereas things like natural gas, you're kind of locked into one type of fuel or in your car, you're locked into gasoline. There's, then there's only one input for gasoline and that's oil and that's on a global market and the price can fluctuate. And so is, th- is there an order of operations here? I mean, we've sort of described a number of things that you would do if you're trying to consume less Russian natural gas. You, yeah. you import more from, from other sources. You create incentives for consumers to consume less. Uh, maybe some of those are price incentives. Maybe some of those are just sort of, you know, awareness raising campaigns about, what you know, turn turn your heat down and that sort of thing. Yeah. You can install things that rely on on different, that rely on, on electricity instead of gas in the home or in the commercial building. Uh, and then and finally, you have you, know, you have new sources of electrical energy uh, instead of natural gas fired uh, power plants. Is there obviously some of those take take longer than others? Some of those cost more than others. Right. How do you think about that as an as an overall project in terms of what you try to do first and how quickly you think you can have results? I mean, I think in the extreme short term, it's you know conservation, so using less, and then also trying to source new natural gas or LNG, liquefied natural gas from more friendly friendly places like the US or, or, or other locations. At the same time, because it's going to take time to turn over individual heaters and um, build new power plants and all of this kind of thing, 
that has to also start at the same time because it's going to be slower, you know, to ramp up. So there's things we can do in the immediate, and then there's things we can do in the in the medium term. You could basically say something like, you know, all new homes that are built in in Europe need to run on electricity. They don't, you know, don't need to consume gas. That would electrify new demand. And then, you know, at some point, every every time like that a heater that a heater breaks in a home, it has to be replaced by an electric one. And so there's, you know, turnover that can happen there. And that can be done with incentives, that can be done with, you know, rebates, that can be done with 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 all types of things. So there can be some kind of regulation that pushes it, but then also, you know, incentives that pull it. If the incentives are sweet enough, you know, people will move. And it's gonna it's really gonna depend on different countries as to, you know, how how they move the needle. Some like incentives and some like, you know, command and control. Let's talk about the United States context uh, and and what we can do here, because I, I, I live in New York and it's been very frustrating for me watching over the last couple of years. We closed the Indian Point power plant, uh, which was in Westchester County, just north of New York City, huge fraction of electrical generation for New York State taken offline. We're currently having fights over trying to build new transmission lines to bring in hydropower from Quebec. It's not clear that that whether or not that's going to get approved. You have sort of local opposition from people who don't want them cutting down trees to build the lines and that sort of thing. And so the, the result of that is that we are using substantially more fossil fuels to generate electricity for New York City than we did just a couple of years ago, creating both local emission issues, particulates and that sort of thing, and and increasing the carbon impact. So when I, I, I look at that with, with great frustration, what do, what do we need to do differently in terms of energy policy? so that we're not sort of moving backwards in, in, in that manner. Yeah, I think I think this brings up a kind of a deeper issue kind of in the environmental community. A lot of the older, you know, environmental organizations, um, some of the ones that have been around for decades, were really kind of built up around stopping the development of certain things, stopping the building of a new power plant, stopping the developing development of a new dam, stopping the development of of something. The new paradigm, particularly around with renewables um, and you know cleaner forms of energy, is that we have to build stuff. We're going to have to build a lot of stuff. And so I think some of the younger generation of environmentalists and and those they understand that. But there is kind of this like fight between the old guard and the new guard in terms of, you know, how do we move forward? Because you can't just shut everything down and expect it to be, you know, and expect and expect to meet supply and demand to get everyone the energy that they want, also in a clean way. Every single study that I've seen for any part of the country shows that we need to build a lot of stuff. And so, I mean, I, I think some of those those attitudes, particularly in the environmental organizations, are going to have to change or we're going to continue to see things like not being able to build that transmission line to Quebec while also shutting down you know, clean forms of energy. This is not just a difference of analysis, right? It's a difference of values. I mean, I think a sure. lot of these environmental groups that sort of before climate change was the overriding issue when we talked about the environment. Yeah. The animating ideas came out of basically a, a broad opposition to, to growth, including sometimes population growth um, that just inherently, you know, more commerce, more industry, more stuff was was suspect, was, you know, was sort of an overuse of the Earth's resources. And so I think it's not 
not necessarily that the, I mean, I, th- I think it's a bigger problem than that because I, I, I think it's not necessarily that these, that the people opposing these things, that they don't get that it's important for reducing carbon emissions to do these things. It's that they have, a, they have other objectives yeah. um, that are served by blocking the projects, even if that does not in fact serve the goal of, of arresting climate change, let alone these geopolitical goals we've talked about. There's also some bit of that in terms of like, there's historically pollution has been local, but now with climate change, it's global. Right. And so matching those two sometimes competing interests is tough. Yeah, though in the in the New York context, those concerns actually align, which is to say when we, you know, when you can't transmit the power from Quebec, you have more coal and gas fired plants in the New York City area, some in New York City itself, in Queens, creating local particulate emissions. So it's actually, you know, you can when people talk about an environmental justice perspective and, you know, disproportionately non-white communities affected by that, that's a that's a real local cost on top of the on top of the global one, which I, you know, I I find sort of maddening that 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 other that, you know, concerns in the Adirondacks have been prioritized over that. But that is that that's the fact of where the, the politics are. Absolutely. Broadly, you know, we're, if we're going to electrify a lot more things, we need to not only generate a lot more electricity, we have to transmit a lot more of it. How how sufficient is our grid infrastructure and, and what does it mean to upgrade that? Is that is it as simple as, you know, more and, and bigger lines? What are the things that we're going to need to install um, if we want to have a grid that's both more robust and able to handle just a lot more energy because we're going to rely more on electricity? Yeah, no, absolutely. And well, I think it's really going to depend on where we want to get that energy from. If we want to have much more renewables in the system, then we're going to have to build a lot of transmission lines. Because say like, you know, the best wind resources we have in this country are in the middle. They're in the Great Plains area. But the majority of people live on the coast. And where the people are is where the energy is consumed. And so if we're going to you know, rely on wind really heavily or solar, which is generally better in the south than it is in the northern parts of the country, we're going to have to move that power around. And so, yes, I mean, I think you know, pretty much every study also shows we need massive amounts of investment in transmission lines in order to, in order to move that around. Sometimes that's upgrading existing lines and sometimes that's building new lines. It seems generally easier to upgrade existing lines that are already there. People are already used to seeing them, you know, adding another three strands of wires uh, is easier to take than, you know, an entire new corridor. But we're going to have to build new corridors. And that's tough. I mean, there are people have written whole books about, you know, how hard it is to build transmission lines um, and things in this country. But it's going to have to be something we're, we're going to have to do. What about, I mean, solar and wind are obviously two non-carbon sources of electrical energy, but you could also have nuclear, hydro, geothermal. What is, what is the role that those play? Are there any of those that we're, that we're not doing enough of? Because I assume that d- diversifying within the non-carbon emitting sources may help with some of those geographic issues. I mean, you can build a nuclear plant anywhere. The location of, of hydropower and, and geothermal sources has a different geography than for solar right. and wind. Yeah. I mean, hydropower is going to, you know, it has its footprint. Um, It's going to be limited, you know, to where there's water and elevation difference. And so there have been studies that have shown that we can increase our hydropower output, but not enough. Geothermal is also limited to where hot temperatures are close to the surface. Although with newer technologies in geothermal that have been actually born out of the fracking revolution, um, we are getting, you know, geothermal is becoming more viable in other places, but it is a newer technology that we haven't deployed at scale. And so it's kind of hard to tell where its future will go. Nuclear is tough because people also don't like nuclear. Um, there's There's large opposition to nuclear facilities and nuclear is also has a history of, you know, cost overruns and being really expensive. However, I will say that That's really a function of how we've built nuclear in the past. 
essentially every nuclear plant we've built is a one-off. It's a pretty much a new design. And, you know, if the car you drove was the only one that GM or Toyota ever built, then it would cost millions of dollars. But those companies are able to get those cars down into the tens of thousands because they come up with the design, they put it in a, on a, you know, an assembly line and just wash, rinse, repeat. There are nuclear technologies called small modular reactors, small nuclear reactors that are looking to do that same thing. They're much smaller in scale. They're built into a factory and trucked out to wherever they're going to go. But they just haven't gotten through all the approval processes of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission yet. And so if they can get there, I think it could be um, a pretty big game changer. But we've got they've got to get past that step. They've got to build the first one. They've got to you know, prove out the technology that it you know that it works. I think you know, obviously people have a lot of opinions about about nuclear that they come in from for the the reasons you're describing. With hydropower, you, there's the the limit in the you know the the suitable sites that you describe, and also there are significant eco- ecological impacts uh, from from dams. You know, you you you're obviously you're changing the course of the river, you're flooding areas, that sort of thing. Is geothermal is there more promise? There, just in, in that it has fewer environmental impacts for people to be concerned about, fewer trade-offs, or are there things, I mean, I, I, I think I, I have less personal familiarity with exactly what a geothermal generation facility looks like. Is that unobtrusive? Is that something that you can scale up a lot without people getting upset for one reason or another about its impact on the surrounding community? I mean, the nice thing about geothermal is that its you know, surface footprint is really small. And so it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. And most of the magic is happening underground. And so the vast majority of the way we generate electricity is we burn some type of fuel, we boil some water, we make steam. And then that steam is sent through a, that spins a turbine, that spins a generator that makes electricity. With geothermal, we get heat from underground. Uh, in Traditionally, we've done that in places where it has actually come close to the surface of the earth. Think places like Hot Springs and Yellowstone National Park and other places like that. There are certain parts of the country where that heat is closer to the surface, and so it's easier to, to actually get. However, with the technologies that in the processes that we've developed with hydraulic fracturing, where we've actually gone after oil and gas, we've been able to drill deeper and you know horizontal and much over much greater area than we have in the past. And while we've extracted lots of fossil fuels from that, we've also extracted lots of heat. And so there are those that are looking at, can we use the same technologies to, you know, instead of getting the fossil fuels, we get the heat and we, you know, send the send either the water or the water gas mixture mixture back underground. And so while at the beginning of drilling a well, you might have a lot of trucks and you might have a lot of activity on the surface, at the end of the day, whenever it's just a producing facility, it's going to look like any small commercial or industrial facility. So and it's going to have a much lower footprint than than other facilities. So the trick is, is we need to deploy this technology, you know, work out the kinks. And then if it works, then then go for it. I think it can work around a lot of the country. Uh, we just have to prove it out. You talked about the the, the importance of being able to get you know, political approvals for uh, electrical grid upgrades in order to support the, these developments. How has that gone in Texas? I mean, I would assume that the blackouts would create political impetus for upgrades and also maybe help to overcome yeah. what could otherwise be local objections to, to new investments in infrastructure. How is how has that gone? Is the state making the investments that it needs? So just to take one step back. So one of the things that makes Texas different than other areas is there's essentially three electricity grids in the U.S. There's the Rocky Mountains East, the Eastern Interconnect, the Rocky Mountains West, the Western Interconnect, and then there's Texas, ERCOT, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. And that is wholly contained within the state of Texas. And because 
the power lines of our grid don't cross state lines, then we don't trigger federal oversight as much as other as other grids. So we're able to do things without all the levels of approval that other parts of the country have to get. And so it's a bit easier to do things here than it is elsewhere. And about a decade ago, we built out a massive transmission expansion within the state that was able to move a lot of wind power from where it's produced in the west, western part of the state to where it's consumed in the eastern part of the state. Now, in February 2021, you know, we we had a whole host of things, you know, go wrong. Our, we had half our power plants freeze. We had 85% of our natural gas production decline and about half our power plants consume natural gas. And so we ended up with some not being able to get fuel. And so yeah. for, for people who don't remember, the, the precipitating cause of the crisis was an, an, an incredible cold snap that produced a long period of, of way below normal temperatures across Texas. Right. It was the first time in recorded history that all 254 counties of Texas have been under a winter storm warning at the same time. And that <laughs> at the same time is important because if you have a light on or, or running your computer, the electricity you're consuming is being generated at that exact second. And so, you know, at the same time as we had record high demand, we had record low supply and then ended up where we were with multiple days of blackouts for lots of folks. And so what's the, the, the what are the investments to ensure that that doesn't happen again? And are, the, are they being put in place? So I think we've addressed half the problem, but it's not a full solution. So the legislature is, you know, and the and the the governing bodies that are here have mandated that power plants be better winterized, such that they don't freeze as easy as they did back in February of 2021. However, we also lost a significant portion of our natural gas production. Um, the data that we had at the University of Texas showed we lost about 85% of our natural gas production, and about half of our power plants consume natural gas. So if we fix the power plants but don't fix the fueling infrastructure that, that gets them the energy they need to burn, then we could end up in a similar situation if we have another event like that again in the near future. So I assume, you know, with any any situation like this, right, you have to figure out what the cost of the investment is versus what the, the risk of, of, of the, the event is, right? What happened was extremely unusual. Was it so unusual that it's that, that the cost might be prohibitive to prepare against the, the next event? Or is it did we learn that, in fact, it's it's not so unusual that the, you know, the, the cost that will have to be borne here that presumably ultimately gets passed on to electric consumers that is worth making that winterization investment that you described for the for the gas production? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's a fair question. You can buy too much insurance just like you can buy too little. There wasn't an analysis done by the Dallas Fed that showed that winterizing the natural gas system would cost a few billions of dollars, but that week cost us tens of billions of dollars, just that one week in electricity cost. And so their analysis showed that it was totally worth it in order uh, to winterize the natural gas system to mitigate against events like that. Now, we, we do tend to have events like that roughly once every 10 years. This one was worse than you, you kind of have to go back to 1989 to really get one that's comparably as bad. But with climate change, if we're going to have a more wobbly jet stream and, you know, potentially more Arctic, you know, masses of air moving down this far and staying this long, it could be happening more often. And if that's the case, then we're going to want to be ready for it because, you know, having 12 million Texans in the dark for four days just is unacceptable. So we've talked a lot about policy responses, responses from from industry that we would want for for a, a more powerful and more resilient electric grid and and uh, generation options that address both both climate and, and political concerns. What what should individuals do 
if someone either their their opinion is, you know, I want to be part of this shift, I want to shift away from hydrocarbons, or just, you know, I want to be prepared for what are going to be changes in policy, changes in prices, what should what should individuals be doing um, if they want to electrify or get, get away from from gas and oil? Yeah, I mean, you know, some of the biggest uses of fossil fuels that individuals have are are their cars, their their daily mode of, you know, transportation. And so, and we're seeing a lot of different types of electric vehicle models come out there or or you know being made available you know these days. And so shifting that or if you're a two car household going at least one electric car, that's what my wife and I have done. We've we we find ourselves using the EV more than the than the gasoline car, particularly now with gas prices being where they are. And then also, you know, as one either, you know, builds new homes or upgrades homes or changes things, you know, electrifying those processes in between, you know, getting rid of, you know, not using fossil fuels, you know, going forward and doing those two things are a pretty big chunk of what an individual, you know, can do. Also paying attention to, you know, the ballot and who you're, you know, who you're voting for. In Texas, we vote on who are our oil and gas regulators. In Texas, it's the Railroad Commission. They have nothing to do with railroads, but they regulate oil and gas. <laughs> we have to say that every single time. And then how should people think about those costs? I mean, I, you mentioned that, you know, if you're thinking about an electric heat pump, it sort of depends on the ambient temperatures where you are. They don't, they're not as energy efficient when it's really cold outside. Are those appropriate in the North? Historically, like the technologies we had 10 years ago, I do think it would have been prohibitive for, you know, most people North of Mason-Dixon line really to be able to get a, uh, a heat pump. But there are newer technologies that can go down to minus 15 degrees Fahrenheit. And so if you don't spend that much time below that level, then, I mean, I think, it, you know, it could be a pretty good investment. And generally, overall, you know, their costs are less volatile. And if you haven't had air conditioning in the summer, you're probably going to want it as temperatures warm. And, you know, heat pumps always can, it can also provide, you know, that service, you know, you know, going forward. So, I mean, I think it, heat pumps have multiple benefits, you know, for individuals all over the, the country. What about buying electricity? I, I, hmm? I, as an electricity consumer in New York, and, and I don't think I'm alone in this, find incomprehensible the retail deregulation of electricity purchasing. And I get I get stuff in the mail about, oh, buy your electricity from me, not from this other source. A lot of it sort of seems to be intentionally priced in an opaque way. I ended up, the, the last time I looked into this, I sort of, I considered some of the options and I decided I was better off just buy, continuing to buy from Con Edison in the traditional way rather than doing that. Am I, am I mistaken about that? Is there, does that actually play a role as the consumer? Can you be like, well, I want to buy the cleaner energy or I want to buy from this energy source and, the, and then that market is actually a meaningful way of doing that? Yeah. So, I mean, if if, if you do choose plans that are 100% renewable or 100% clean or, or, or whatever it is, that will force that retail electric provider to source that energy. And if, they, if they're having to source that energy, more and more of that energy, then more and more of those, um, more and more of that infrastructure will get built. And so it can have an impact. Although I do agree that the retail electricity markets are not the most visible markets out there. And that's where regulation steps in, where public service commissions, public utility commissions need to make sure that those those rates are clear and are not predatory at all, because that's also an issue with particularly lower income folks who don't have time to really dig into what does it mean to have a variable rate and things like that. 
And then fi- finally, I mean, we talked earlier about basically using demand management to match up to supply. That you want people at times of peak demand uh, not to reduce their usage, and that helps to to get you into equilibrium. So I, I'm an, another thing I've experienced that has made more sense to me than some of the price deregulation is I actually at, at my house on Fire Island we have a uh, we have a Nest thermostat. Um, and with uh, PSEG, the electric provider here, they have this like energy rush hour thing where it's like, you know, today there's high demand. Please keep your thermostat at like 76 degrees or higher. And then it claims that, you know, if I if, if we follow these the whole season through, we get some you know, it's not a huge, but it's a material electric rebate. Um, so that feels like something that is actually transparent to the consumer. Can we get a lot of motion from from that sort of thing? I know that I mean, I guess you have industrial users of electricity that maybe can be more sophisticated and you can you know more directly influence them through changes in price and that sort of thing but I'm, I that was something that I saw that actually was like huh that seems like an intervention that might actually work on some scale if you if you do that yeah I mean and that historically we've we've done things like demand response which you're describing at the industrial and commercial level because it's it's been easier to get a lot of energy reduction from one location than spread out over over multiple ones and so if you're doing it at the individual home level you need volume in order to really move the needle you need lots and lots of homes to be in those programs but I mean there are parts of the country I mean down here in Texas particularly in Austin we have a massive program you know that's able to reduce our peak demand five ten percent you know, during the depths of summer. And so, and that can be really significant, you know, whenever the grid's close, you know, the grid's re- grid conditions are really tight, you know, reducing it just 5% can reduce the price a lot. And also, you know, can save, you know, can save a lot of money in the, in the system. I will say that another thing that is also important besides demand response is just general efficiency. We in the U.S. are in particular, our homes are woefully behind, you know, how efficient they could be. And Europe is much better at this. California is probably the best state in the union in terms of homes being more efficient. But there's a lot of gains that can be made just by making sure that, you know, our windows are efficient. We have the, we have an adequate amount of insulation in the attic, things that are, things that are not necessarily sexy and cool, but can save a lot of money overall. And because they work regardless of whether or not the electricity is on or anything, they're, you know, passive efficiency metrics, um, you know, can go a long way. How can consumers think about that if they're trying to figure out where's, you know, where's my home's energy loss? I mean, I know my my friend Stephen Smith, who does uh, real estate development issues in the U.S., one of his big hobby horses is that Europeans have much better windows than we do. Uh, they use casement windows or tilt and turn windows where you don't have the the two pieces sliding against each other, which basically creates a gap for all the air to escape. Um, but there seems to be a big market preference difference there where some of those, the, the kinds of windows that would be standard in Europe are sort of bespoke or unusual or relatively expensive here in the United States. So how should how should people think about that in terms of what they could do that would improve energy efficiency, but that isn't going to be some insanely cost prohibitive thing for them for them to do? Where are the where are the really good returns on investment there if you're trying to make your home more energy efficient? Yeah, generally, I would start with an energy audit. There's lots of local companies that could come out, you know, and to individual homes and and look and see what is the low hanging fruit in this home. And a lot of times, it's a little bit more attic insulation. It's you know air sealing around you know where pipes go through walls. You know, putting foam insulation around things like that, making sure that the cold outdoor air is not able to get in. That you you know have sills underneath doors. Little things like that that don't cost a lot of money but can save a lot in terms of our our energy bills going forward, 
I mean, I just think having better building standards would be, you know, would go a long way because if you just made it the norm that we had to have those more efficient windows, that we had to have more insulation, that's a very small cost added on to building something new, but over the lifetime of the building, you know, can save a lot. So if you just raise the bar higher, you know, if we had to deploy more of those types of windows, their prices would come down as the volumes of them increased. I mean, I just think getting better building codes would go a long way going forward too. Let's leave it there for this week. Joshua D. Rhodes is a research associate at the Weber Energy Group at the University of Texas at Austin, and he's a non-resident fellow at Columbia University. He's also a founding partner of an energy consulting firm called Ideasmiths. Joshua, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thanks for having me. It's been great. If you'd like to be the first to know about upcoming podcast topics and to suggest questions for my guests, I encourage you to sign up for the Very Serious newsletter. It's at joshbarrow.com, and subscribers get four issues a week from me. They also get special access to our thoughtful Very Serious community. Please consider supporting this podcast and the newsletter as a paying subscriber. Your subscription directly funds the newsletter and the podcast. And we'd like to hear from you. You can reach us at mayo at joshbarrow.com. That's mayo like mayonnaise. Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back next week.